We're in Colossians chapter 1. Last week we began this uh, short letter of the Apostle to the Colossians. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just mention too, this is uh, Emily Johnson's last Sunday here. Uh, She's moving to the D.C. area to uh, serve as a coordinator there of ministry to handicapped people in a church, and we'll miss you. And uh, pray that the Lord uses you mightily there, Emily. Um, As you turn there, there should be a bulletin outline. There are printed messages at both exits. You can access them now or later. They're on the church website also, along with the last 23 years' worth of messages. So feel free to get up and get one if you need one, or get one on your phone or your iPad or whatever you might have. I'm going to cover verses 3 through 8. I struggle with this. Uh, One preacher I read, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think had four or five messages on these verses alone. And uh, there's a lot here. I am disciplining myself to keep moving, so you can congratulate me for that, (laughs) that we won't bog down, I hope. But... uh, Anyway, if I miss saying something that you wish I'd commented on, uh, sorry, I'm trying to cram it in. We're going to cover verses 3 through 8, and I'm going to read the text now. Uh, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. A bishop had just had a cup of tea with some of his parishioners, and uh, he uh, commented, I'm glad to see what a comfortable way you live. And the churchgoer replied, Oh, Bishop, if you want to know how we really live, you need to come when you're not here. And uh, that story, I think, points out something that's true, unfortunately, in a lot of people, that they keep up a good front to impress others, especially, I suppose, preachers with their spirituality. But if you knew how they really live, you'd realize that they're faking it because they're not living as authentic Christians. I think we all value authenticity, especially when it comes to our faith. We can fake it with others, but we can't fake it with God. And so we need to be authentic. But then we wonder, well, how can we know if our faith is genuine? And what are the marks of authentic Christianity? Well, many of the Colossian believers had been unsettled by some false teachers who had arisen in their uh, young church. And they were telling these relatively new believers that uh, what Epaphras had told them in the gospel was good as far as it went. 
but that there was more. They needed to observe certain holy days. They needed to abstain from some food and partake of other foods and drink and so on. And bottom line, they needed to keep these rules in order to be spiritual. And they were implying that the gospel that Epaphras had preached didn't go far enough. It was good, but it wasn't complete. And so they had the complete answer. And uh, Paul is writing to the church to assure them that Epaphras, whom he calls his fellow servant, fellow bondservant in the Lord, he had given them the genuine item. He had preached the true gospel to them, and they needed to stand firm in it. And it proved its authenticity by the fruit that it had borne in their lives and the fruit that it was bearing everywhere it went. And so Paul, in telling them these things, emphasizes three cardinal Christian virtues that occur throughout the New Testament. Faith in Jesus Christ, love for all the brethren, and the hope of heaven. Also, as Paul opens up, we learn some other marks of authentic Christian uh, living, namely his thankfulness to God and his prayer for them. And so putting it all together, authentic Christians are marked by these four things, counting thankfulness and prayer as one. Uh, The second thing, faith in Christ. Thirdly, love for all the saints. And then finally, the hope of heaven. One thing is obvious. These Colossian people were very different after Epaphras had explained the gospel to them and they had believed it. If people have not changed, except maybe in profession only, I think we can be, at least we should question whether either the true gospel was not preached or they didn't truly believe it. Because when the gospel is preached and people truly believe in that gospel, then there are changes, the changes that Paul himself embodies and that he commends uh, the church for here. The first one we see is that authentic Christians are marked by thankfulness and prayer, or maybe we could say thankful prayer, if you want to make it one. Verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, as we saw last time, Paul had not met these new believers yet. Um, They had come to faith through Epaphras. But the very fact that Paul thanks God for them uh, shows again that they had responded to the gospel. Epaphras had told Paul about the changes. And so he and Timothy, I think that's what we means, is he and Timothy in their prayer times began to thank God for these new believers and to pray for their faith. The fact that God thank, that Paul thanked God for their salvation shows that he believed that God is the author of salvation, that God is uh, the one who has provided it. There are people who teach that God has done all that God can do, and now it's up to people by their own so-called free will to believe. And if, if their salvation had hinged primarily on their free will, 
Paul would have congratulated them for making the right choice. You know, you ever go to a restaurant, as, as we do occasionally, and the waiter says, oh, good choice, when you pick your, your menu selection. And I always feel like saying, well, thank you that you recognize my culinary genius, you know. Um, when you congratulate someone on their choice, you're saying, you know, that, that, you're really wise. You, you did a good thing there. And Paul doesn't do that here with the Colossians and say, good choice. He says, thank God. Thank God that you believed. And the reason is no one believes unless God first opens their hearts to believe. And so we can thank him whenever we see the miracle of new birth. Um, In line with that, you know, many of our friends who insist that free will is the key thing in salvation, they contradict themselves because they pray for the salvation of the lost. Now, I believe with all my heart we should pray for the salvation of the lost, but my point is this. If God has done all that God can do, and now it's up to free will to save them, God would say, if you pray for so-and-so to be saved, he'd say, I'm with you. I really wish they would make a good choice and trust in me, but, you know, my hands are tied. It's that free will thing. I just can't get around that. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, God is powerful and mighty to save sinners. And if God didn't do it, they wouldn't be saved. And so we can believe that he is the one. Matthew 6.10, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, Pray like this. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that a prayer that God would save sinners? Because... How can people be subject to the king unless God subdues their hearts? God moves in mightily to save them. And so thankfulness and prayer mark believers, especially even prayer for new believers, prayer that new people would come to faith as God works in their lives. In, uh, throughout this letter, thankfulness and prayer are themes. For example, on thankfulness. If you look down to verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul says that we are to be joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You go down to Colossians 2.7, Paul says we're to be overflowing with gratitude. If you move on down to the passage that Matt read during the worship time, chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, He says three times, first of all, he exhorts us to be thankful. Then he exhorts us to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And then a third time, he says to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Concerning uh, prayer, uh, Paul prays here, verse 3. We'll see the content of his prayer in verses 9 through 12 next time. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he combines prayer and thankfulness when he says that we are to um, pray, devote yourselves, he says there, to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And then in chapter 4 and verse 12, uh, he reports that Epaphras was always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. 
So thankful prayer should mark Christians. Now, it's easy to say that, but I have a hunch some of you are like I am. And that is, when things go wrong during the week, you're prone to grumble. Boy, that's easy. You know, not the big things. The big things I stop and realize, wait a minute, God's dealing with me here. It's the little irritations where I just prone to, you know, why did that happen? How come I got this problem? And I grumble. And I hope it's obvious that grumbling and thankful prayer tend to be on the opposite ends of the spectrum. In fact, thankful prayer is the antidote to grumbling. And so the next time you find yourself grumbling, stop, confess it to the Lord, and then thank the Lord that he's given you this opportunity to trust him in this situation uh, and that he's given you this laboratory where you can learn to trust him in this frustration that you're facing. And you'll find that it really changes the way you deal with problems. It's a mark of authentic Christianity that we be thankful and prayerful in all things. Now, the reason Paul thanks God is because he sees in the Colossian church these three Christian virtues— He sees their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for all the saints, and their hope laid up for them in heaven. And all of that is contained in the gospel that Epaphras had preached to them. Those three things, faith, hope, and love, or faith, love, and hope, whichever order you take it, are all through the New Testament. I'm just going to rattle through the chapters, but you can get the specific verses in the printed notes. 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, Romans 5, Galatians 5, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, Hebrews 6, and Hebrews 10. So more than once, faith, love, hope are there in close order in the New Testament. One writer says they're kind of an apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. So I want to look at those with you. First mark of of Christian then is thankfulness and prayer. Secondly, authentic Christians are marked by faith in Jesus Christ, and that includes understanding the gospel. Uh, To have true faith in Christ, first of all, you have to understand the gospel. And so authentic Christians are marked by understanding the gospel. There are some people in churches who say, oh, I believe the gospel. And if you said, great, explain it to me. They'd sit there flat-footed or closed mouth and say, ah, I can't. Well, obviously, to have genuine faith in Christ, you have to understand the gospel. Let me explain three things. First of all, the gospel is fundamentally the good news. That's what the word means. The good news. In fact, I could pile up adjectives there and say it's the incredibly good news. It's the super abundant good news. It's the extraordinary good news. It's the best news in the entire universe. Um, The Christian message is not primarily ethical. It's not primarily moral. It's not primarily a self-help message. Now, all of those things follow ethics, morals, help in the problems you face. 
But the good news is primarily directed to those who deserve God's judgment, and it's a message of hope. And, and in Luke 2.10, when the angel spoke to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, he said this, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you, notice, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So to understand the good news, first of all, we have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is every single one of us has sinned and we all deserve God's judgment because he is righteous. And so we all come before God as guilty. And we need a Savior. He, There's been born for you a Savior. And as I've explained before, that's a radical word. You don't need a Savior if you're doing pretty well on your own, thanks. You need a Savior when you're lost and, and you can't help yourself and you're going to perish without that Savior to come and rescue you. And God did that. He sent His own eternal Son, born of the Virgin Mary, who took on human flesh, died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, And then he offers salvation to every sinner, not on the promise that you'll clean up your life, not on a moral self-improvement program, but he offers it, as as Paul says in Romans 4, 5, not to the one who works, but God justifies the ungodly who has faith in Jesus. The ungodly. So you come to him just as you are, sin and all, and as a free gift, he, he saves you from your sin. And there is no better news in the entire world than that for every person. Because every person has sinned. Every person needs a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Now, the second thing we have to understand then, and I've been talking all about this, is the gospel then has content. It has content, specific truth. In verse 5, Paul says, It is the word of truth, the gospel. And through Epaphras, Paul says the Colossians had previously heard it and learned it and understood it in truth, which means they, they truly understood the message that Epaphras had proclaimed to them. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the point, that the gospel does not primarily come to us through our emotions or through our heart or through our will. It primarily and first of all comes to us through our minds. We have to understand it. We have to learn it and understand it as the Colossians had. And that may not sound very profound, but that runs counter to a lot of evangelistic methods in our day. Here's what typically happens. The evangelist gets a big crowd together, and first of all, there's a lot of emotional music, and everybody is just feeling the great feeling of this good music, and it's very moving. And then a few people get up, and usually they're famous, and they'll tell their story of how they got saved, and wow, that's moving. And then he gives an emotional message encouraging everyone 
who wants to receive Jesus into their life to either raise their hand or come forward and there's kind of a crowd thing going on and people are going forward and somebody goes, oh wow, I need this. And he promises them, if you'll come to Jesus, he'll heal your marriage. And if you come to Jesus, he'll get you over your alcohol addiction. And again, all those things can be true, but the problem is that's not the gospel. Never in the Bible do you read, Jesus came to save your marriage. Now, he can do that. He, he does that regularly, but that's not the gospel. And never in the gospels do you read, oh, he came to get you over your alcohol addiction. Again, he does that. Because being filled with the Spirit, you have self-control. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is you have sinned against a holy God. And you are guilty. And you are headed for judgment. And God intervened with his son. And he shed his blood to pay the penalty that you deserve. And the good news is, if you will trust in Jesus, God counts your sin against Christ and his righteousness to your account. That's the gospel. And so, before that gospel can be believed, you have to learn it. You have to understand that. You have to understand something of who God is. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in verse 3. Down in verse 8, he mentions the Holy Spirit. And so clearly, Paul had a Trinitarian understanding of the one true God. And Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Lord, he is eternal God. As Jesus, he took on human flesh through the virgin birth. As the Christ, he's the promised Messiah, the deliverer, promised to um, us as early as Genesis chapter 3 and from there on out. He is the Lamb of God, the, the perfect sacrifice who bore himself the sins of uh, all who believe in Jesus. And so, he is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament sacrifices. Paul also, you notice, describes the gospel in verse 6 as the grace of God. The grace of God. And let me say this. If there's no grace, it's not the gospel. If it's a message of works, you got to add this and do this and do this and do this. And finally, you tip the scale. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. How do you know when you've done enough? You don't. The gospel is grace. And grace means this. You deserved, I deserved God's judgment. God gave us eternal life as a free gift. What we don't deserve. That's grace. We, we should have been condemned. As Spurgeon puts it, we had the rope around our neck. We were guilty on the scaffold. And all that had to happen is the scaffold drops and we would be eternally condemned and Jesus cut the rope when you believe in Jesus. So that's grace. That is the grace of God. And so the Bible says that God can be both just, the penalty was paid, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he puts it this way. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
And that, not of yourselves, the entire thing, by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, it's not wrong to tell them Jesus can help your marriage, Jesus can help your drinking problem, whatever it may be. But make sure that you make it clear that's not the gospel. The gospel is whether you have a Ph.D. or whether it's an illiterate street person, anybody in between, they all have the same problem. They have sin. And Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Trust in him. That's the gospel. And that is good news. Good news with that specific content. And then thirdly, notice that the gospel is powerful to save sinners. Powerful to save sinners. Here you've got a bunch of Roman pagans. They were living in central Turkey in Colossae. But they had no hope. They were without God in this world, just living for the lusts of the flesh as pagans do. Epaphras comes. He proclaims the gospel. He explains it to them. They believe in Jesus Christ. God opens their minds to understand it. God changes their hearts to respond. God moves in their will so that they believe in Jesus and they are dramatically changed. And Paul says in verse 6, it's not just them. It's going throughout the whole of the Roman world. He says in all the world, it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Now, he doesn't mean there or down in verse 23. He repeats, repeats it. He doesn't mean that the Great Commission has been fulfilled He just means it's going all over the place, and wherever it goes, it results in changed lives. Romans 1.16, Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Bearing fruit and increasing, I think, has two nuances to it. Bearing fruit is the internal change of the gospel. Because he mentions later the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So the gospel changes us internally, but then uh, increasing, that means in the context, spreading out. It's going all over the place. And that happens when people see changed lives of believers and they hear the content of the gospel, they believe, and so the gospel spreads. That's the idea. So authentic Christians then understand and believe in Christ's gospel, but also part and parcel of that is the second part. Authentic Christians are marked by faith in Christ's person, in Jesus Christ himself. Paul says he heard of the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus. And the word in there kind of has the idea in the sphere of Christ Jesus, meaning um, that faith is in all that Christ is, in all that Christ did. But the point is, it's not just in the doctrine, it's in the person of Jesus that we must believe. Now, faith has no merit in itself. Faith is always only as good as its object. You may go down to the airport and believe with all your heart that a plane is going to get you to your destination, that doesn't affect whether it will get you there or not unless that plane is trustworthy. 
If it's a defective plane, your faith doesn't change that fact. If it's a good plane, your faith is what enables you to get on board and get where you're going. And Jesus is the trustworthy one. He is the one testified to by the law and the prophets. And it is faith in the Jesus revealed in the scripture that saves. I say that because there are, as in Colossae, there were false teachers. There are many false teachers in our day. And they are promoting a false Jesus. And the people believe in it. But the problem is, it's a faulty Jesus. It's not the Jesus revealed in Scripture. And so our faith has to be in the Christ of Scripture. Old Testament points ahead to him. The New Testament reveals him and points back to him. He alone is our Savior. So first mark of authentic Christians is they're filled with thankfulness and prayer. Second mark, they have faith in Christ Jesus and his gospel. Thirdly, authentic Christians are marked by love for all the saints. And Paul often couples faith and love as genuine indications of conversion. For example, he's refuting another error in Galatians, but in Galatians 5, 6, he says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. The Galatian heretics were saying you have to follow the Jewish law. But rather, Paul says, but faith working through love. And while faith is essential to begin a relationship with Christ, it's worthless if it doesn't result in growing love for others, especially, as he says here, for all the saints. And that love is a mark of true discipleship. Jesus in John 13, 34 and 35 said this, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Paul also mentions down in verse 8 that authentic Christian love is in the Spirit. And that means the Holy Spirit produces that love in us as we walk in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit grows in us. The flesh, in contrast to the Spirit, the flesh is basically self-serving. And in that list in Galatians 5 there, before he gets to the fruit of the Spirit, Paul mentions the many deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, 20 and 21, he, he includes enmity, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So if you see any of those things in yourself or in someone else, you know that's not from the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit produces love. The fruit of the Spirit is love first. And Paul describes that love in in 1 Corinthians 13, as you probably know. He says there in verse 4, love is patient. That one trips me up every time. Love is patient. Love is kind. And it's not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly, meaning it's not rude. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. That means it doesn't keep score. 
It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if you struggle with selfishness and some of those deeds of the flesh, I would encourage you, write 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, on a 3 by 5 card. Tuck it in your Bible where you're keeping your place where you read every morning. And just read that over to start your day. And as you read it over and over and over and over, it'll begin to burn into your life. And before you know it, you'll find yourself, instead of flying off the handle, you'll be patient. And instead of being mean, you'll be kind. And God, the Spirit, will begin to change you as the Word of God uh, is embedded in your heart. Let me also point out this. If Christian relationships were perfect, we wouldn't have these commands to love. <laughs> you know, we'd all have it down, wouldn't we? So if you're frustrated with yourself and going, oh, man, I got so far to go, you're in the process. So we're not talking here about perfection. We're talking about direction, that you are growing in these things. You're, you're judging the flesh. You're... You're learning, you're growing, but you wouldn't need a command to love if others were not irritating you and if you were perfect yourself. So it's the process that we're looking at here and uh, sacrificial love for others, just as Jesus loved us is a, an authentic, a mark of authentic Christianity. And then finally, authentic Christians are marked by hope the hope of heaven. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Grammatically, that phrase, because of the hope, it could go all the way back to verse 3, and it may do that, meaning we give thanks to God for you because of the hope. Or it may just go back to the faith and love, in which case it would mean um, that their faith and love spring from the hope they have of heaven. If you have a, an NIV translation, uh, they took the liberty of interpreting that phrase for you. They don't translate it. They interpret it to mean that faith and love come from the hope. And probably that's correct, um, What it means is before Epaphras preached the gospel to them, these people had no hope. They were without God in the world. When he preached and they believed, they got hope. And that hope fueled their faith even more. And that faith fueled their love so that all three build on each other and they grow together. Now, hope here doesn't mean the process of hoping. It means the hope itself. In other words, the object which is the promise of God that we all have eternal life through Jesus Christ and we'll be spending eternity with all our brothers and sisters in heaven. So guess what? You better learn to love them now. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but in heaven, they're going to be perfect. And in perfect, you know, it's not too hard to love a perfect person. And I'll be perfect then, so I won't have to work at loving them. True, true. Uh, we all have our rough edges now, but um, we still got to learn to live with them. Some wise guy observing the rough edges now wrote, um, 
to dwell above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know. Well, that's a different story. And that is true, isn't it? But anyway, the hope should motivate us to the love. But to come back to the point here, uh, our hope of heaven is the foundation for love and for faith. And that hope is certain. It's not like, well, I don't know for sure. It's absolutely certain because God promised and God never lies. And yet it's not realized. So we have to live in the hope of eternal life in heaven. I am convinced of something about us American Christians. And if you're from another country, you can listen in. This may not be true of you, but I think we American Christians live too much in the here and now and not enough in the hope of heaven. Um, We have it good here and now, don't we, most of us? I mean, I got a roof over my head. I'm not rich, but I'm not poor. Never worry about, I wonder where we're going to get food for today. We have plenty to eat. We all have gadgets, you know, that are luxury items, cars and TVs and computers and Uh, smartphones and all of those gadgets. A number of years ago, I was in California. I was preaching through 1 Corinthians, and I came to chapter 15, verse 19, and it really clobbered me. Paul says this, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And I thought, wow, is that true of me? I thought, no, you know, I mean, if I died and that's it, the way I'm living now, I could say, man, that's a good life. Have a wife who loves me, you know, three wonderful children, 12 grandchildren, all the blessings that we enjoy in America. But you know what? If you move over to the refugee camps or all those people escaping Syria, like trying to jump off the sinking ship, The believers there, their hope is in heaven because they don't have much in this life. And Paul wrote that when he was suffering for the gospel. And it may come here. It may come to America where we're suffering, where we lose everything. And then your hope is in heaven where Jesus is and all the promises there. One Puritan writer put it this way. He said, were earthly comforts permanent, Who would look for the heavenly? So, hope, well, first, thankfulness and prayer, uh, faith in Christ, love for the brethren, the hope of heaven. Those are the marks. Somebody said, I just read this in the paper this week, sincerity is the key to success. If you can fake that, you got it made. That's supposed to be humorous. Some of you were asleep there. But a lot of us fake it, don't we? We fake sincerity. I don't want you to be overly introspective. Um, Robert Murray McShane is said, uh, was uh, reported as saying, for every look you take inward, look ten times to Jesus, Okay. But once in a while, you need to look inward because the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 said this, test yourselves 
to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? And so I think our text would have us all look inward for a moment before we look Christward and say, uh, is my Christianity authentic or am I faking it? Is it authentic? Well, the tests are, am I thankful? Do I pray? Is my faith in Jesus Christ? Am I growing in love for my brethren, especially those I have to deal with every day, not theoretical love for everybody on the other side of the world? And then am I motivated by the hope of heaven in all that I do? And again, I'm not talking perfection. None of us will be perfect in this life. I'm talking direction. Growth in these things. Growth in being thankful. Growth in being a person of prayer. Growth in faith and in Christ and in the gospel. Growth in love for others and growth in the hope laid up for us in heaven. That's the real deal. Dear Lord, help us to be genuine, to be authentic. I I ask, Lord, if there are any here who do not truly know Jesus, that you would open the eyes of their understanding to see their true guilt before you and that they cannot atone for it themselves. But they don't have to because you provided a perfect Savior. And that through believing in Jesus, they can have eternal life this very moment if they will put their trust in him. And I pray, Lord, for your saints. We all struggle. We struggle to be thankful. We struggle in prayer. We struggle sometimes to believe the good news about Jesus. We struggle to love our fellow believers. And we struggle, Lord, with the hope of heaven. So help us to grow, to be strong in faith, in hope, in love. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.